0: Hi everyone, welcome to Resistance Recovery. My name is Piers Kanuka and I'll be your host. special guest this week i have the author gary lockman who last i look has written about 21 books um they're pretty uh they cover the waterfront of esotericism and consciousness and culture um can't recommend them enough so in fact before this uh what prompted me to even reach out to you is I went on a little Gary Lachman binge. i read your last three books in succession. Um, fantastic stuff. So. so just a little bit about who you are and um, how you came to, to write on these topics. Well, um, first off,
1: thank you for uh, having me on uh, the podcast. Um, I, um, I've always, well, not always, I mean, many, 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 many years ago, and I, in an in a earlier past life when I was a musician uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. But uh, I uh, came across a book by a British writer named Colin Wilson, and the book was called The Occult. And there was sort of an occult boom going on at that time. It started in the, the mid-60s, and I'd actually written a book about about that called Turn If You Mind, about the Cult influence on pop culture in the 1960s but by about the mid 70s it it had blossomed into uh you know a whole sort of genre of uh music and literature and all that any case um i didn't have any interest in that sort of stuff at all aside from sort of horror fiction h.p lovecraft and weird tales that kind of stuff in horror films but i came across this book and um I started reading it, and it was just a fantastic uh, book. It was just very well written, and it was a history of the uh, occult, but um, from a perspective of a kind of existential philosophy, which is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, And I had read that kind of stuff, Sartre and Camus and Nietzsche and, and, you know, that that, that sort of thing. So I had some idea what that was about. But um, this writer, Colin Wilson, I, I didn't know. He sort of started out as a sort of British uh, existentialist with his first book, The Outsider. So I didn't know he had this whole kind of decade prior to this book, The Occult. Any case, long story short, it just, it just uh, blew me away um, how he wrote about it because it was a narrative, a history, but it was from this perspective of a kind of philosophy of consciousness. It wasn't about, you know, just spooky stories or spells or candles and stuff like that. And at the same time where I was living uh, in New York on the Bowery, And this was back in the day when the Bowery was the Bowery. Um, A good deal of it isn't anymore. It's all very built up. And if you go there and if you ever knew the place back in the time I lived in it, you wouldn't recognize it. Funnily enough, except for the building in which I used to live, which is still a dump. So um, people are living there now. Sorry, I, I don't mean to be insulting, but I was actually relieved to see that this building lists, was still in exactly the same shape it was 45 years ago. Um, at least the exterior was. But any case, in, where we were living on this loft space on the Bowery, just a block away from this club CBGB, which was really big and famous at the time. Um, and... Um, the, the other band members I was living with, they had a kitschy kind of interest in the occult and they had some voodoo dolls and upside down crosses and things like that. But there was this very flamboyant um, gay artist guy who was into the Hells Angels, but he was also into Aleister Crowley and it had a Crowley tarot deck. And he used to do these impromptu tarot readings and all this kind of stuff. So I just found myself in this milieu with all this kind of occult uh, stuff going on. And I just took to it. And it became fascinating for me. And many, many years later, I wound up starting to write about it. Um, first book reviews and articles, and then gradually, uh, by about 2000, my first book came out. So for the last 20 years, I've been sort of writing about it fairly, fairly regularly, as you said, yeah, more or less about 21, 22 books. So more or less a book a year, um on on these topics and um i usually say it started out as a naive enthusiasm for weird stuff and it gradually became a serious kind of uh, study of of uh, weird stuff
0: <laughs> so there you go well you can really see an evolution so i mean the earlier stuff that i read of yours which would have been the uspensky book and the steiner mm. book and in the young book, which is a little later, but you know they're quite topical. Um, but then books like *The Secret History of Consciousness* or uh, *Lost Knowledge of the Imagination*—those books are like tour de forces. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so I can really see how you're um, you're working something out, and maybe we can. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I I think uh, what. Well, to tell you the truth, I mean, what I like to do is write the kind of books that I like to read. And the books I like to read are books that bring a lot of stuff together. Yeah. Uh, Like make connections. And this is what this writer, Colin Wilson, did throughout his life. I mean, he died in 2013. And subsequent to my reading this book in 1975, I came to London, I uh, came to England, I went on a pilgrimage in 1983, down to Cornwall, where he lived from from the late fifties until when he died in 2013. And uh, I mean, many other people did this. His, his, he had this um, house um, down, I mean, when they, when he they first moved down there uh, in, the, in 57, I mean, nobody else lived there. So it was all kind of, you know, end of the world kind of, you know, landscape. Uh, with the English Channel, just, you know, a short walk down the, down the road on the cliffs. But subsequently, it's all got built up. And when he first lived down there, it was it was sort of, you know, no man's land. Uh, but he had this house, and um, it became a kind of pilgrimage spot for lots of people going there. And I made my pilgrimage in 1983. Uh, I, I went on what I call a mini search for the miraculous with a friend of mine from <laughs> from Los Angeles. And we were both, actually, we were both in the Gurdjieff work. at the, You at were. Time. And Gurdjieff, for those who don't know, is an um, is, uh, es- enigmatic, esoteric uh, teacher, um, Greek-Armenian, who developed this whole system of sort of psychological de- development in in um, the 20s and 30s and all that. And um, in the early 1980s, I got involved in it. And at this time, among other things, we went to different sort of places. We went to Shart and uh, Glastonbury, and then um, we we found Ger- Gurdjieff had what he called the, his um, institute for the harmonious Deve- development of man in this chateau um, in Fontainebleau outside of Paris. So we made a you know pilgrimage there. But I went on a separate individual pilgrimage down to Cornwall to meet um, Colin Wilson. And by this time, I was just you know, mad about his books and reading all of them. And he he wrote over a hundred books, so there's always there's always there's a lot to read. But in any case, he, what he did in so many of his books was he would read everything about the subject and topic, and then he would make these connections between you know, different writers and different thinkers and different ideas. And so I just found myself doing that as well in um, the book you mentioned, Secret History of Consciousness, which came out in 2003. I mean, that was basically what I'd been reading about for the last 30 years. So I just kind of had an t- opportunity to say, okay, here, this is all this other stuff. And it was also something, I mean, one of the things that I, I think is important about Wilson and more or less what I'm kind of doing is kind of carrying on this tradition is that there's lots of stuff about consciousness these days. It's a very popular topic, but it's usually either sort of from uh, the scientific point of view or the spiritual or the psychedelic. And what Wilson pursued was a sort of existential phenomenological, you know, more, again, that's another mouthful, but it's, it's, it's more about um, a kind of mapping out of your, your your own consciousness, you know, your own experience of I mean, paying attention to your own kind of consciousness, which is fundamentally what phenomenology is about. And I, I won't go into great detail about that, but, but it's another kind of tradition, a way of doing this that, that isn't quite, hasn't really settled into a niche in where these other ones have. And so um, I kind of feel like that's what I'm sort of doing. And also lost knowledge imagination. This was another thing where, you know, this phrase, the uh, lost knowledge imagination came from um, a British poet, um, uh, Kathleen Rain. She was a Blake scholar and essayist and, 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 and a poet. And um, she had this whole idea of that there was a whole kind of lost teaching or rejected knowledge. Or lost tradition of the imagination which she associated with the romantic poets, you know, Blake and Keats and Shelley and uh, Coleridge and then later Yeats. And then also sort of with platonic and neoplatonic philosophy and so on and so on. And I took that idea and in a relatively short book, just connected it to other sort of people that I've been reading. So um, yeah, I I, I I like doing that. And actually in a way, it's a kind of, approach to writing or writing books that used to be more popular and kind of um, there was more of it say in the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s and then sort of by the 80s there was a sort of specialization yeah. you had to be an expert on this and the whole idea of the kind of the general you know, well-read, literate uh, either author who could write about a wide variety of things connecting them and the reader who was interested in that that kind of started to Turn into very old school kind of thing. And um, I guess that was how I grew up. You know, my, my intellectual, insofar as I have one, uh, education, you know, came from that kind of background. So that's the kind of books I like to write.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that, you know, I think I was really apt when you described how consciousness now is sort of pigeonholed. I mean, if you look on, um, <clears throat> I have a resistance recovery closed Facebook group, and a lot of the postings, you know, we got this renaissance of the psychedelics going on.
1: Hmm.
0: And then we also have some and oftentimes fairly spiritual insights coming out of neuroscience, at least them looking at Buddhist practice, meditation. Yeah. Or finding um, the
1: God spot. What's that? Finding the God spot.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this stuff's all very, um, you know, it's great. But like you're saying, it's all either, you know, functional MRI with some guy who's done 2000 hours of meditation or as my, my people say, tripping balls. (laughs) And there's not this, you know, this other realm of what's going on when you read the poem, write the poem, get taken by the, the piece of literature, um, the dream that stays with you, the Jungian big dream. And that's why, I mean, this book, people, this book is just something else because this is the kind of book I fantasize about writing because what what Gary's done is he's brought a bunch of thinkers that are, like he was saying, pretty marginalized into dialogue with each other. And um, Henri Corbin and steiner owen barfield i mean my god um and the way you set the book up maybe this would be helpful that you set it up talking about how since the enlightenment we've all kind of been born into a paradigm that has certain psychological consequences
1: well yeah i mean the um well, I start. The, I mean, what imagination? I mean, when we tend to think imagination, it's either um, make make believe. Um, that's just your imagination. Um, it's kind of the opposite of reality. It's fantasy in 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 that kind of way. Or it's you know the cutting edge. It's it's innovative. You know, it's the um, the next step and the next big thing, whatever it is, in whatever area you're working in. And of course, we still recognize it in in the creative. Uh, works of you know, painting and um, music and, and film and all that and so on. Uh, but um, as I said earlier, this, this poet, Kathleen Raine, she, she recognized that there was actually a whole kind of tradition in which the imagination was not an alternative to reality. It was, it was, it's a reality in itself. And it actually um, enables us to understand aspects of what we call reality that aren't immediately accessible, and they're not accessible to the senses. But what happened? The big, the big, the big change that happened in the early 17th century was the start of what we know now as as science. And this was um, fundamentally it was a rejection of the metaphysics, a rejection of spirituality in the sense that there was some other world that. Um, but somehow prior to the physical world that we all live in, you know, and, and our world now is just a reflection of this higher world. And they said, well, let's put that aside and let's just pay attention to what's happening in the actual physical world. And what we can do is we've learned we can measure things. You know, we can, we can get precise measurements about things in the physical kind of world, the material world. And this is what enabled us to, you know, nowadays have this kind of conversation of the computer and, and, you know, go to the moon and all this kind of thing. It's, it's, it worked enormous marvels and 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 wonderful you know uh, advances in human life and all that but it came at a price and the price was something along the lines of the soul it goes back to the you know the 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 saying, you know, what what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? In one sense, the West, as a whole culture, gained the world because we've mastered the world by now. You know, I mean, for better or worse, we've become masters of reality because we can pretty much do whatever we want. But it came at a price because we, in order to do that, we had to empty the the world, nature, clouds and trees and mountains and stars. We had to empty them of any kind of inner content. You know, and, and any kind of inner meaning, which they used to have prior to this, you know, the angels move the stars. And in order for us to understand, you know, the laws of planetary motion, we had to kick the angels off the planets and just get down to, you know, what we could actually, you know, study in terms of quantitative measurements. And um, this, is, this is the thing that happened. Imagination got increasingly sidelined and marginalized. T- till today, it's something that, you know, in some way people think you can teach it. Uh, in, in, in a class in some way, as if it's a specific kind of faculty that you can kind of teach in some way. And um, according to the people I talk about in this book, it isn't quite like that. It's, it's, it's a whole way. It's not, it, it's not about make-believe. It's about making real. It's, it's, it's about, um, it's a faculty we have in order to perceive dimensions and depths of reality that are not accessible to the senses. I mean, that sounds very dry, but that that's what it is. And we use it all the time, and we don't even know that we use it all the time. Because if if, if imagination wasn't in some way binding our experience together, it would all kind of break up into, you know, kind of disparate parts. I mean, in the book, I, I kind of, I, I call it a, an intuitive glue that kind of holds the picture together, the picture of the world. I mean, one of the things that we grow up being taught is um, that, the world is just out there. And when we open our eyes, we, you know, we're just mirrors or we're cameras. We're just reflecting what's out there already. But what many of the people I talk about in the book came to understand um, is that actually below our conscious perception of things, there's a whole, you know, processes going on in which we're basically forming the picture of the world that, that we see. So what we naively believe to be just the world, as we innocently see it when we open our eyes, is something that on an unconscious or subconscious level, our minds have already shaped and formed into this picture that we have. And that, that's the kind of work of the imagination that you know we're, we're not aware of. And, and, and so um, this, this is the thing where it, it's... The, thing, the sad thing about this, I'm sorry I'm saying say it this way, but the sad thing about this is that The imagination isn't going to help in any kind of quantitative profitable way, even though there's lots of books about how to use your imagination in in the office and, you know, in a variety of other work ways. It's really about something that's got nothing to do with that. The reason this practical, you know, functional utilitarian approach to reality became so dominant and so successful is that it was aimed at actually having visible results of something, you know, there's a practical result. Imagination isn't going to affect the, the, you know, uh, price of tea in China, but it will increase your experience of that cup of tea you have. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. And it's this non-quantitative implicit kind of dimension of value that our imagination provides is the thing that we, because the whole Western and not only Western, just in general, kind of utilitarian practical view of, of life wants to put it aside because it's not about that. And, you know, as, as you know, in the book, I, this gets into left brain and right brain and, and the whole kind of tussle between the two of them. But this is the sad thing. It's like it's we can't argue that, yes, imagination is good because it's going to do X. It's not going to do X. What it's going to do is it's going to increase and enhance and deepen, and enrichen your experience of the world you're already having. And this is a this is a hard thing to sell.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, it's a hard thing to sell. But what's so interesting listening to you is, you know, we live in this time where, especially with spiritual matters, mm. everything's commodified. Oh, that's it. You know, whether it's the yoga journal or the tarot reading or the tithing to the church, I guess. But it's almost like there's something about imagination that's resisting the machinations of the world in a way.
1: Well, I mean, that, that's what I'm, uh, uh, I'm trying to say, you know, um, um, clumsily in my last um, sort of, you know, tirade there. And uh, I mentioned left and right brain. And um, I talk about in, in this book, Lost Knowledge, Imagination, and also um, the book I wrote before then called Secret Teachers of the Western World, which is a sort of overall narrative history of the West, but from the, this point of view of this other counter tradition, this hidden or lost tradition of the imagination of the esoteric and all that. But also seen through the lens of this wonderful book um, called The Master and Its Emissary that came out about 10 years or so ago by Ian McGilchrist, who's a, a neuroscientist, but he's also an English scholar and, and uh, you know writing about poets. So he's got one foot in each camp in the scientific camp and also in the humanities and all that. And what's important about this book, it's a, you know, huge tome and it's, uh, you know, the, the, the research and, and, and references are dazzling, but the fundamental insight, he, what is, what he reboots the left and right brain discussion, which got really heated up in the eighties. And then it kind of lost in the nineties because um, the neuroscientists didn't want to keep studying it because too many pop psychologists and, New Age people were picking up on it. And it kind of, you know, kind of lost. And then they found out, you know, it was like left brain scientists, right brain artists. Yes, in a general sense. But as we discovered, both brains actually do both things. But what McGilchrist said is, well, yes, they may do the same things, but they do them very differently. So it's not a question of what they do. It's how they do it. And the right brain, which he posits as being older, uh, you know, uh, that's what it's the master and the left brain is the emissary presents a global, total, large, holistic picture of things that is necessarily vague because it is a general, total picture. But it, and, and it, it, it's, um, it communicates what, what in lost knowledge I say are these implicit meanings. It's a kind of meaning that you feel, but you can't, you can't quite pinpoint it precisely. But that's what the left brain does. The left brain unpacks this big, global, fuzzy, vague, I, I mean, fuzzy and vague in the sense, like if you listen to a piece of music and it's like it moves you and you know it means something, but you'd be hard pressed to say, well, it's a, yeah, there, right there. That note means you can't do that. You know, it just wouldn't work that way. But you just have a sense it means something. I can't say exactly what it means. Or it's the same kind of phenomena in a way as when you have somebody's name or the, the name of something on the tip of your tongue. Well, you know you know it, but you can't say it. And this is because the right brain doesn't communicate in language, it communicates in images and symbols, metaphors, poetry, allegory, and even physical sensation. The left brain is incredibly precise and its job is to unpack this this larger global kind of picture. And the right brain sees the forest, the left brain sees the trees, it sees the individual branches on the trees, it sees the individual leaves on the branches, it sees the individual cells on the leaves, on the branches, and it goes down and down and down to closer and closer fine tuning. And we're really good at that. The whole scientific you know, um, project which started four centuries ago is all about that. But what you gain in precision, you lose in meaning. You, know, you lose the connection to the larger kind of thing. The larger thing you feel, but you can't say precisely. But it can only be communicated through gesture or art metaphor science doesn't want metaphor wants precise, you know, prosaic formulae, it can get those, but it loses the connection. So we have both of them. And, you know, um, but what happened is that, that precision, that accuracy sort of became increasingly dominant, you know, four centuries ago until now, the other side, this larger global, implicit kind of perception of things has, has become, you know, over, over on the side and, uh, that's um, that's that's the knowledge of the imagination. Is is that kind of you know? Um, and that's what I was saying before. How it's it's a real change in how we understand things. It does. It doesn't mean let's get rid of the left brain. Let's get rid of science. No, absolutely not. We we need all that. But let's bring back in this other you know side of things. And you mentioned before we started um, uh, recording about soul, and how there's a, a a lack of soul or an absence in soul in. Um, many or most of the kind of rehabilitation programs dealing with addiction and all that. And I'm not surprised because there's a lack of soul in pretty much everything out there. It's all become marginalized, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, in some way, you know, we need to bring that back in.
0: Yeah. It's um, so if you, and I wouldn't recommend this to anybody, but if you were to study psychology, you know, clinical psychology, you may get, you know, you have to take a personality theory class or something. And you'll notice that, you know, we're talking, we're reading about Freud and Jung and there's still literally soul is in currency as a term. Hmm. But by the time you get now, you know, you're preparing to be a social worker or a counselor. The metaphor of the human being that's just driven down your throat is more or less we're a biocomputer. Hmm. A neurochemical biocomputer, and so the, the the treatment modalities are always about they're always thinking, and they're always behavioral, and this whole realm, this whole middle realm of soul and feeling and memory and all that, it's completely neglected. And in fact, the only thing they really know to do with it, within the system, is to medicate it. You know, your affect bothers you. Take this yeah, pill. Yeah. But we're trying to change the things that can be measured, you
1: know? Well, that's, that's the thing they can tinker around with
0: and they can have charts
1: about and some kind of, but the other stuff is like, how do you measure that? You know, you can't measure it in that kind of precise way. And that's the problem. Um, I mean, some people, you know, obviously some people have tried to do this. You mentioned Jung. I know within the Jungian world, what was it James Hillman? Yeah, oh, yeah. Rejourning soul, Thomas Moore, you know, uh, turned it into some best-selling books and all that. And, um, but you know, it's something that was taken seriously up until that time. You know, if you look prior to the rise of science in the early 17th uh, century, um, and during the Renaissance, people like Massilio Ficino, that whom James Hillman draws on quite a bit, he had a whole kind of psychology, psychotherapy based on the notion of soul and, and how, you know, you can somehow, um, treat melancholy or a variety of other sorts of um, afflictions by somehow addressing, you know, the hungers and needs and appetites of, 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 of the inner world. And this is, I mean, it, the last book I did, uh, you said you, you know, read the most recent ones, The Return of Holy Russia, which I, I wound up writing a history of Russia, which I, 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 mean, I never thought I'd wind up writing history. Who thought I would wind up, you know, ex-punk rocker writing a history of Russia? Anything can I think it's very punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the things, it's the soul. This was something that Russian philosophy and Russian thought, when it came into its own in the nineteenth century, it, it 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 was it overwhelmed the West. People, you know, I, I write in the book about how people like Robert Luton Stevenson and others, they said that they couldn't finish reading Dostoevsky because it was too it was just too powerful. And it was because the West had just jettisoned or at least marginalized these kinds of questions. And that's what all the Russian was, psyche was about. What's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? W- all that kind of thing. And you know, Dostoevsky says in um, Notes from Underground, where he has the underground man say that if you, could, if you could prove to me that the universe was this wonderful logical system of you know, cogs and wheels, and in the end, everything worked out for the best, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, and so on and so on, I would still go insane on purpose just to prove that I am free. And that's this, this, that ornery, you know, encourageable part of us that is the soul. And it's got nothing to do with making sure everyone's fed and clothed and have, you know, decent living spaces, which there's nothing wrong with that. Of course we want all that, but that's not enough. Man does not live by bread alone. And the, the other stuff that isn't the bread is the stuff that feeds the soul. And sadly, we've we've, and this is McGilchrist's argument, is that you know, in, in very general terms, we've increasingly created this left brain kind of world around us, which just doesn't treat anything like that. It it it, it wants to mark. I mean, the, they how they worked is a kind of, you know, um, uh, what's the word, friendly feud going on between them. They're sort of there's sort of a you know a, a rivalry going on between the two sides, and as as the American political or government system should work in Congress, there's a system of checks and balances. So what they do is they inhibit each other's excesses. So normally if the left got too excessive, the right would somehow inhibit that and vice versa. But somehow down the line, the left has increasingly got more in charge and it's taken over and it's marginalized the right. So right, and the right can't, it, that's the thing, the right doesn't speak in the kind of precise language that the left would understand. It speaks in hunches, it speaks in symbols, it speaks in metaphors, it speaks in poetry. Um, I hear recently, I saw on the news that um, because of COVID-19, which is a handy reason to, for lots of things to happen, um, poetry apparently has now been jettisoned from the, you know, the British uh, school system. Really? Uh, you know, because some, somehow they had a cut, they had a <laughs> the budget cuts <laughs> demanded something, had to go. And it's like poetry and it's just like, well, you know, it's like poetry is some, what is it nowadays? You know, it's it's this kind of, it's like opera at best, you know, sort of something that, yes, we know it's important, but, you know, every now and then maybe we'll pick up a book of poems. But that that, that is another kind of example of this kind of increasing more left, you know, prosaic kind of way of looking at things and quantitative things. And um, it, it's a shame because I, I, I really feel like we have to fight for this in some way. Yeah. You know, we have to fight to keep it. And it's not a fight. We can't go protest this fight. We can't tear down statues about this fight. This is a different kind of, we can't occupy Wall Street about this fight. Yeah. This is a whole other kind of interior terrain that we have to kind of, I, I would feel somehow in ourselves, we have to come to understand and occupy and then you know, in some way ensure that it's not taken over by these other forces that in many ways just, and again, the strange thing is that it's well-meaning. It's supposed to be aiming towards making the everything better.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, when I look at, when I think about, um, I think I was born in 1963, so you and I are of an age. Um, but this thing you mentioned earlier about you know Camus and Sartre and all that, uh, uh, you know that was kind of in the air when we were coming up. So there's this whole sort of philosophy that was born of this, you know, this alienation from the world, this sort of just overwhelming self-consciousness, this kind of inwardness. We're cut off, uh, um, and I and I feel like that you know that's we've kind of gone past that in that. Culturally, there's, there has been, on some level, a reaction to everything you're talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's not very um, conscious or productive. You know, so sometimes I think it's symptomatic. Mm. Like I think it was Barfield or both Barfield and Jung said, you know, we, we, we disenchanted the world out here. And now all the spirits have come in here. And many of them are like pathologies. mm, mm. But I also feel like something like the counterculture, uh, drug abuse, sexual excess, rock and roll, and all the rest of it is this sort of Dionysian, you know, reaction against it. Mm, 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 mm. Does that ring true? No, oh, well, I mean
1: people? no, no, sure, no, sure, sure. I mean that that's always well that that's that's generally how it is. You know, if it's uh, if you feel too clamped down, then we want to you know, throw off, you know, kick out the jams and uh, just go for it. And that's, um, that's, that's traditionally a way, I mean, it's Dionysian in in that sense of excess, but it's somehow, I mean, you, mean, you, well, okay. Well, it's in in some ways, it's not quite as Dionysian as the original Dionysian ones where the mayonnaise are ripping, you know, children apart and eating them. So, okay. I mean, I'm sure some people are maybe doing that somewhere and you could probably find it on the net if you really look for it. But at the same time, it it, doesn't, it, our excess doesn't have that kind of spiritual background to it because the excess was supposed to somehow ignite that little spark of soul, that you still possess the the spark of the Godhead. And then you were, you know, you were part, but it it is, it's a notion of getting out of your own personal consciousness into something bigger. Uh, And that could happen at a football match. You know, it happened at a rock concert and, and all that kind of thing. But I think also, you know, somehow this, this whole, the movement towards excess is in it's, it happens because there's nothing else, you know, there's no, there's the, we, in, in the absence of any other, any kind of, um, you know, in the absence of any kind of shared narrative of what, what the heck is going on, you know, what, what, what's the world about now, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of become the one way that people can find some relief from the increasing pressures of the post, 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 everything world that that, that that we live in. I mean, the world's just becoming more and more complex. Uh, if nothing else, the world's becoming more and more complex. You know, and the complexity is not necessarily leading to a better life for everybody. In fact, it's leading to, you know, um, lives that seem incredibly stressful and lead to the kinds of, you know, um, behavior patterns that you're talking about. And so, um, I mean, one of the people I write about or have written about is the, you know, the notorious dark magician, Alistair Crowley, um, you know, the great, the, one of the, the, the last great magician of, of the 20th century. And um, he was one of the people that when I first got into this stuff that, oh, I learned about, and mostly because of the drugs connection, you know, he wrote a book called Diary of a Drug Fiend, um, which is still a fun read. And, um, but, you know, talk about excess. This was something that he was completely into, you know. Um, uh, excess in all directions was, was a kind of motto of his, which I, I always thought was that, that's a great title for some heavy metal band, you know, some album for them. But it was this notion of just excess, excess, excess. And in one way, you know, I'm glad he did that because I think he showed for those who can see that that doesn't work. Yeah, it does. You have, you have moments of this kind of liberation and release and all that. But in a way, you know, once the, the, that, that release has happened, you still have to kind of deal with the world. You still have to develop some routine in which you can handle the world and prosper and get on and actualize yourself. And Crowley always talked about finding your true will and all that. But that basically meant for him that, you know, everybody should get out of his way and just let, yeah, <laughs> let, right. let, him, yeah. let him do what he really wanted to do. And he was a spoiled rich kid who basically had everything handed to him when he was young. And then he just expected the world to be like that after that. And I'm not saying that there weren't good things about him. He did have insights. He was brilliant at times. He had more than a touch of genius. But in the long run, um, I think we do, you know, um, owe him a round of applause for showing that this kind of a- attempt to, you know, get over the hurdle of the burden of our individual consciousness by, by, by trying to throw it off in terms of excess doesn't work, you know? So we have just, we have to learn other ways to do it. And um, I would say it's, it's got to do more about rather than trying to throw off the burden of individual consciousness. And we have to, let's face it, it is a burden, you know, it's, 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 um, it's not fun, but we have to somehow map out in our own awareness of ourselves that those terrains in which um, we do feel a, a momentary widening of our consciousness in some ways, as you said, you know, reading poetry or listening to music, looking at a sunset. I mean, one of the, I've written an article about, uh, uh, I've written an article recently about a strange experience I had during lockdown here. When one morning I went out, I have a little garden over here, I went out and I looked up and I look. I said, what's that? And I was surprised by the sun. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's just sort of like, I mean, I, of course I know what that is. But at the same time, it's just, it's suddenly struck me as, as something strange and, and unknown and all that kind of thing. And for a brief moment, I was seeing it in this other kind of way, in a way that isn't usual and habitual. And which yep. is the kind of thing that the meditation and variety of different exercises about consciousness and all that is about, you know, trying to induce or the effect that good poetry does have on us or music or other things like that, or, you know, a, a spring morning or something. But that's the kind of thing I think, you know, I would say we have to patiently try to be aware of those kind of moments and, you know, connect, connect them when, when we have them at different times. Because I, I think these sorts of are the moments of a fuller, deeper, more enriched, more imaginative. And I don't mean by make-believe imaginative, I mean somehow feeling a kind of unity in our experience. Uh, I think they happen to us more often than, than, than we know, than we recognize.
0: Do you think it's a problematic that, you, the phrase you used earlier, that we didn't have a shared sense of meaning? Mm. So even when people recognize that they need to have a more soul-rich life, they're kind of thrown back on their own individual devices.
1: I think nowadays that's, I mean, not not to say people don't, some people I'm sure still get that soulful um, nutrient from the religion they, they belong to, whatever it might be. Some people get it from some kind of social group and something like that. But I, st- I, I do think as a culture at large, especially now, we, we don't have any kind of shared narrative. Um, And that's a good thing because it frees us up to discover. And it's a difficult thing because if you don't discover something or you can discover something that like fast food, you know, it can satisfy your appetite, but in the long run, it's not necessarily good for you. So you might find some spiritual practice of some phony guru or some, you know, uh, bogus something or other that offers this and you, you know, and, you know, that's the other, I, 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 this is a difficult time. This is a kind of dark night of the soul, I would say, for our culture en masse, because we are thrown back on our own resources. Uh, and in a way, the COVID crisis has been a kind of microcosm of that. You know, and I think in a very general historic sense, we've been thrown back on our own resources and now individually in our own lives, because we've been forced to, you know, limit them. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're thrown back on your own resources. Um, and, um, and I don't want to minimize how difficult it has, has been, you know, for people, it's been horrible. I, I can't imagine you know, people stuck in one room and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think that, that, that in a way, it, it, it kind of, you can see it as a sort of metaphor for what, you know, in, 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 a, in, in a general sense has been something we've had to deal with for quite some time now.
0: So um, Thomas More, James Holman, the third party, of that there was a little triumvirate there was a guy named robert sardello mm.
1: he's
0: actually my teacher
1: oh was, right oh yeah he's great I, 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 I met robert many 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 years ago oh you did yeah
0: he'll be yeah. on here in a week or two all
1: right yeah. um,
0: and he likes to say he said we only develop psychology in the absence of cosmology or the absence of cosmology is what mm. creates psychology mm. so we get all individualized and thrown back on ourselves. And we have these, It would see, there's a real interesting irony here. I'm having these, these, these what appear to be individual issues born of this alienation. And yet you're having them too, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's almost like we have a shared pathology hmm. Hmm. in the absence of the cosmology. Hmm. But, but I find myself wondering, you know, where, where does this go? Because I can't imagine Western culture, or even sort of the kind of consciousness that's taking over the world, hmm. will ever go back into a shared cosmology.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, I, I it's interesting. Yeah, interesting you say that because as I get older, I realize at some point my path and that of the world is going to you know, it's going to bifurcate, yeah. and um, I don't know what's going to happen in. You know, fifty years from now, who knows? I mean, I, I, I have certain concerns, and one of the things I think um, it's going to be an important question is uh, the definition of what it means to be human. Is yeah. uh, it's a, it's already undergoing change. I mean, the, the the next book I have in mind is something about transhumanism, but um, mm-hmm. I'm going to steal I'm going to steal a title from Nietzsche and transhuman all too transhuman because um, <laughs> I mean I think transhumanism is a good. It's a great idea, I, I shouldn't say this because somebody else is gonna take it already. But yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a great idea, but you know, the problem is we're not even human yet. Yeah. That, 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 that's, you know, in some way, I mean, I, I, the book of mine called, um, presumptuously called Caretakers of the Cosmos is about this whole notion of that we're, we're, you know, we're not really fully human. And, and I don't mean in a biological evolutionary sense, but I would say in a kind of inner, you know, Psychological or spiritual kind of sense, and, um, and drawing on people like Maslow and, and and others, and also in in the esoteric tradition of you know uh, Swedenborg and uh, the Kabbalah and this whole notion that we we're actually what we have been we're put into this world in order to repair it, you know somehow um, when God or whoever you know, made the world, they screwed up. It was a <laughs> it was a big mistake, lots of problems. And so we, he called us in to make it better. And our job is actually to put Humpty Dumpty better back together again. And also to make a better Humpty Dumpty, not, not just to put the broken one back together. So, I mean, that's a whole Yeah, whole I mean, story. it looks
0: like transhumanism is really about taking the bro- broken Humpty Dumpty and giving it steroids.
1: Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. I mean, it's like, and what, you, no, I don't know, what do you want to say? Transhumanism, uh, it was coined by Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother, in the 1960s, in, in a book, I believe, New Wine for New Bottles. And the idea was that, human. He, 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 what he was saying was that humanity has become the managing director of its own evolution now. Um, so we, we, we've learned enough about ourselves, we're aware of the processes, what's going on, where we know now, perhaps up until now, it's been a blind process that's just happened by chance and so on and so on. But now that we know about it, we are able to make decisions in order to, you know, make evolution ourselves go in the direction we want it to go into. And so transhumanism was in many ways exactly what I was talking about in the sense that he, he was saying what was necessary was the kind of insights into reality that we got from art and culture. It wasn't about survival of the fittest anymore it wasn't about you know the pressure of the environment because we could choose we were aware and what was the transhuman was reaching out to these higher deeper um more meaningful aspects of our um, existence that that we we find in art and and the philosophy and all these kinds of things so it wasn't about computers and cyborg and becoming you know all that kind of stuff and then it got I don't know. So I don't know who picked it up and turned it into that. I know there was like, uh, uh, are you serious and Mondo 2000 and all that kind of thing. And I know, is it Ray Kurzweil is sort of doing that. And, but um, it's funny, funny you should say that because um, I know this notion of Kurzweil and I think Frank Tipler and some of these other people about seeding the universe, you know, life and intelligence has started here on the earth and we have to you know, somehow download our consciousness into computers and machines, and we're going to shoot them out into space and go and, you know, seed the rest of the universe and all that. And this was something in some ways that um, one of these strange characters from this period in in Russia that I was writing about the Silver Age, this guy, uh, Nikolai Fedorov, and he he had this whole notion, well, he had this whole notion that what we had to do was revive the dead. This would be the common task that would unite all of mankind he didn't know how he would do it, but he knew that once we recognized that it needed to be done, it would draw us all together. And part of that, and this is how it became fundamentally the kind of kickstarter for the Russian space program, was that he thought, okay, we could, it'll first start with some, some person who just died being revived and brought back. Then we realized that we couldn't, we, we could not um, forsake our ancestors, you know, we couldn't deny them this miracle. So we'd have to collect all the dust, all the ancient dust from all the graves and all that. And that, that, they would somehow be revived. But some of that dust has left the planet and it's gone out into space by now. And so not only would we have to go out into space in order to collect that dust, but we'd have to also find habitable planets because there wouldn't be enough space left on earth when all the dead have come back, you know? And so it's, it sounds absolutely wild, but... In, um, but again, is this, this notion of somehow this grand, you know, heroic kind of vision of you know, humanity going out and seeding the planets, um, which ha- has, a, has, ha- has a grandeur to it. I mean, you, ha- you have to admit there's an epic character to it, but it does kind of deny the notion that somehow perhaps the universe is already alive. It's already sentient in mm-hmm. some way, which we don't immediately understand, but we have a whole tradition in the East and in the West as well of philosophies and you know, teachings that, 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 that say that in, in, in different ways. And, and we, we, I, this would, I think this will, this will be the one of the, if, if everything works out well, this would be one of the great things that happens sometime in the future where we actually recognize that the world isn't a what, but a who.
0: Yeah, yes. And I think there are thinkers like Steiner, You know, everything's a being. Um, what's interesting about Fed- Fedorov, Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and the human transhumanists, they're still operating on this notion that death is an absolute evil. Yeah. Right. And that there's no meaning to death or, you know, and and Hillman used to always say soul has a special relationship to beauty and death.
1: Mm -hmm. Because
0: only in the face of that does meaning really the question Mm -hmm. and the pursuit Mm -hmm. of it arise. I want to be sensitive to the the time. And the one thing I do want to ask you about, um, I think this, if I'm not mistaken, you correct me, I think one of a a real Gary Lockman idea is your ideas about hypnagogic imagery.
1: Mm, mm. That
0: is something I've seen in your work, talked about that way that I've never seen anywhere else. Mm, mm. Um, I'd like to hear more about that.
1: Well, um, hypnagogia, again, is another mouthful, but um, it's, uh, it, th- that term was coined by uh, Andre Mavromotis, uh, who wrote this wonderful book called Hypnagogia. And it, it's about this strange state of consciousness that we enter or find ourselves in at least twice a day. And it's the in-between state between sleeping and waking. So as we're drifting off to sleep, and then in the morning, whenever we wake up, as we're waking up, um we enter this kind of liminal state and a strange if, if 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 you ever sort of pay attention as you're falling asleep you can sort of see images at the same time you're aware of your surroundings so you're kind of awake still aware of your surroundings but you start to see these images form in front of you and they can be faces they can be sort of geometric patterns like be any number of things i mean i um i i i often see a sort of ball being thrown at me as i'm falling asleep and i kind of go like that and duck it and then i have a weird kind of body shake. But you can have different ones as well. And um, one of the things that other researchers in this, in this strange state of the consciousness discovered, um, especially this fellow who was an early Freudian, Herbert Silberer, is that it's auto-symbolic, meaning that the images you see, and you can also hear sentences or words being said to you, are symbolic of either your physical state as you're falling asleep, your, men, your mental state or your emotional state. So it could be something you were thinking about just as you were falling asleep will turn into an image um, or you know, some emotional state you're in. So one of the um, couple of things I experienced, I mentioned the ball, the other one is I often see these little men falling downstairs like, like, like a slinky and, the, and, and, and it's, they are falling down. They're, going, they're falling asleep and so am I. So as I am falling asleep, these little men are going down the stairs and that kind of thing. Or um, one I've mentioned in, in an article I wrote about this is that um, I had been reading a book about how Freud and Jung referred a lot to Greek mythology in, um, you know, uh, uh, describing the unconscious and things of that sort. And um, I drifted off into a sort of a doze in the afternoon a nap after reading this, while I was reading this book. And as I fell asleep, I saw an image of an old, old kind of cellar doors, you know, the old kind of outside cellar doors that opened up like that. Uh, you had to, go out, you had, had to go out of the house to get into them. Yeah. And as those doors opened up, they, they kind of opened a little close, opened and then suddenly they opened up. And then all these mythological figures came like crawling up the stairs from the basement. So that was exactly what I just had been reading about. How the unconscious, which is under, because you know, Jung and Freud used a lot of mythological you know, figures from Greek mythology in order to talk about the unconscious, and they all came up as I was falling asleep. Yeah. I was going down into the basement. The basement doors were opening up, and here we are over here. <laughs> they came up to greet me. So, and what people like Jung and Steiner and Swedenborg and Uspensky and many, many others learned how to do was to hover in that in-between state to learn how to stay in it and to watch dreams form. And it's something we can all do. And, um, and what's interesting about it, aside from that, is that it's also a state in which a lot of sort of paranormal phenomena can happen. Precognition or telepathy or something along those kinds of lines. And um, I mean, it's something you can find out for yourself um, and, uh, quite easily. And it's different than a dream because you do not in a dream, you're completely submersed in the dream. And you don't have that critical awareness. And it's different from lucid dreaming, in which you wake up in the dream and you, you're dreaming and you become awake. The hypnagogia, you're awake and you start to dream and, and you can sort of watch the dream form. And it's a way you can have it's, it's many ways, it's what Jung later developed into what he called active imagination, where you could have a dialogue with the unconscious in this way. So, you know, it's, uh, it's something that's a handy way for. You know, people to get in touch with their unconscious.
0: It's really interesting, though, because the way you treat it makes it much more um, you know, it dem- democratizes it. You know, because you you young and active imagination suddenly it sounds like some super esoteric thing that the oh, master and well, or, he, or, or Steiner, you know, he's like doing it in front of you and speaking out of it, and you're like, yeah, 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 you know. <laughs> um yeah
1: well i mean they went out and practiced it and developed it but i mean i think in, in uh, individual experience we can it's a way we can we can enter and observe an altered state in consciousness um so someone i know um jennifer dumford she wrote a book called liminal dreaming which is pretty much all about you know hypnagogia and, and a variety of different sort of herbs and sort of stuff you could kind of, in senses, you can use to do that. But, you know, if you just um, kind of try and pay attention as you fall asleep. Um, and I'll tell you, though, one thing that you may experience is sleep paralysis, which is a really weird, excuse me, it's a really weird um, thing to happen. It's when, um, well, at, when we fall asleep and we get into REM, you know, sleep, and we're dreaming, our muscles go torpid. They just go completely slack. And this is an ele- evolutionary adaptive trait that, that animals developed ages ago so that they wouldn't move around and act out their dreams. So if they were kind of acting out the dreams, they would be you know, um, um, easy prey for their predators. So evolution and its wisdom had developed a way in which to keep the body still. So that suggests that somehow dreaming is that important. Because if the dreaming itself was something that would be evolutionary, unadaptive, right? Right. And would lead you to be killed off, then okay, let's get rid of that. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't get rid of that. We protect that by making you paralyzed
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that you can have the dream and not attract predators. So we still have that now. And mm-hmm. I, I, I've, this has happened to me so many times and it's a freaky thing to happen where you wake up, you're conscious, but your body is still asleep. Your body's paralyzed. And yeah. it's a really weird thing. And this, it, it's, it's, it's the old hag sitting on you. It's the incubus and succubus, or it can be the sort of a out-of-the-body experience. And, uh, but uh, for me, it's generally been a very very strange thing to find,
0: ah, I can't move. Yeah, for me, it's always been fairly terrifying.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: dreams going on with it is usually pretty dark.
1: Yeah. Well, this didn't. I, I recently the, did a, finished a book about pre, my precognitive dreams, which is a whole other story. But also hypnagogic and sleep paralysis, and you uh, I didn't. You get it. I didn't
0: wrote a book
1: about it. Yeah, yeah. I just. I, it's with it's with um, my editor now, publisher. Um, it's a short. Well, because I, I gave a talk in London last year about hypnagogic experiences, and then I also tagged on some precognitive stuff. because yeah. Uh, I've been writing down my dreams for the last 40 years on and off different times, but I've collected quite a few precognitive dreams, dreams which bits and pieces of the future turn up. Mm-hmm. And um, again, this is something that any one of us can find out for ourselves, whether it's true or not. And I would lay even money that if you did, you would find out that it was, that um, if you just copy down your dreams and pay attention to what happens during the day, you'll see bits and pieces. And I'm, I don't mean, you know, Uh, having a premonition of some disaster or something like that, which can happen. Those are the ones we most hear about, but it's, it's usually trivial sorts of things Mm -hmm. and you have no, why, why that? But my God, it's actually, that's the case. I dreamed this last night. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so I did a book about that, but the hypnagogia and some bits about sleep paralysis in it, but that's the weird thing because I'd wake up in a dream. The dream's still going on. I'm aware that I'm, lying in bed asleep and paralyzed. (laughs) And uh, many years ago when I was married, I remember trying to get my, well, I I refer to her as my future uh, (laughs) ex-wife, trying to get get her to wake me up, to shake me because I can't move. And I'm like this. And all I can do is kind of move this. And I'm having some weird dream, which I'm fighting off a witch or something or some creature. And I'm also awake trying to say, shake me. And I can just mumble. And my, I could, I'm aware of my wife's face hovering over me. Say like, what? What? Are you okay? You okay? And I'm trying to say, no. <laughs> and it's like, it's premature burial. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, like it's, it's, you yeah. know, it's a couple, couple not, not centimeters away from, you know, cat, uh, catalepsy or something like that. But it, it was, it's a weird, weird experience. And I had multiple consciousnesses, mm-hmm. if I could put it that way. So I was aware of the dream. I was still acting in the dream I was in. I was aware that I was lying in bed, you know, paralyzed and couldn't move. And I'm also trying to
0: communicate
1: with, you know, very, very strange stuff.
0: So what is the gist of the book? I mean...
1: It's, it's basically, I've had these precognitive dreams for the f- last 40 years, and I finally decided to write about them. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's um, kind of a you know short introduction, and there's a chapter that's just basically I'm just saying here's here's a variety of different precognitive dreams I've had, and then there's um, a chapter on dreams in general, a chapter on time in general, and a chapter on um, uh, precognition and um, synchronicity, and then a kind of some, I, I look at the work of um, well the book that got me going on this was um, called an experiment with time. Again, it was published in the 20s and it was by a fellow named J.W. Dunn, who was an aeronautics engineer. So he wasn't an occultist or anything like that whatsoever. But he just discovered by paying attention to his dreams that he actually dreamed bits and pieces of the future. And he developed a whole series, this kind of metaphysics of time that in a way is kind of irrelevant to the actual experience. You don't have to accept his metaphysics of time, which it, 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 it's, it's a kind of shaggy dog story with kind of um, infinite regressive observers, observers in different levels of time. So, But the actual experience he talks about, and, and you too, you too can discover this is the case. And then there's a British writer who nobody reads anymore named J.B. Priestley, who was very big in the 20th century, but um, he called himself a time-haunted man. And um, he wrote some very popular plays that are still put on, Time in the Conways and "I Am Here Before," I, I Have Been Here Before which deal with different time theories. And he was actually influenced by P.D. Uspensky a great deal. Um, Uspensky's ideas about eternal recurrence and six-dimensional time. And um, uh, there was somebody uh, who's not as well-known named T.C. Lethbridge, who was um, a British, he started out as a Cambridge uh, archaeologist, and then in his later life, um, he took up, well, he he started. He was he, he discovered he could douse and then he started using a pendulum. And he again he de- he developed this whole theory of different levels of time through using the pendulum. I can't go into detail about it. So I kind of play sort of say. Well, these were these guys thought about it. I look at some contemporary stuff. Dean Radin, um, yeah. who's um, um, you know I, I, I guess the the big name in in parapsychology these days. And it's a very interesting book uh, by a fellow named Eric Wargo called uh,
0: "Time yeah, I read part of that. That's
1: a uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't agree with his theory, but it is a very ingenious, um, you know, um, idea. And it's a wonderful book to plunder. <laughs> lots, of, lots of information about different tests about, you know, but again, this is something like there's even more scientific evidence now for the reality of these things. Right. You know? So, Are but you... that, you know, that's fundamentally what it's about. Yeah.
0: I mean, it seems like you're, I mean, it's definitely trending, the whole precog thing, right? Mm. Now. Um, are you aware of this book? We'll finish with this: Prometheus and Atlas. It, um,
1: it, is, is that um, Jason? Um, yeah, it was uh, Georgiani?
0: Because of his alt right. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I, I I I know the name. I I, I haven't read it. So.
0: I'm reading it, and I I'm pretty impressed because he, mm. he really starts with Heidegger, and he says. Know this notion that we're all we all grow up with with um that technology is a function of science, he says that's couldn't be less true. Hmm. Technology Hmm. predates science.
1: Hmm. And what he's
0: saying about this enlightenment time is that in effect, what we did is he calls it spectral stuff. You could call it paranormal, you call it soul, you call it mystical. All that stuff was shuttled off to pursue a certain technological. Modality, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. And but he's saying that you know the paranormal is actually evidence that um, you know we're we're confusing the map with the territory. Mm. the, the mm. territory mm. really, yeah. all these faculties are yeah. being inhibited. The culture, they're culturally or socially being inhibited. Mm. Really well,
1: no, that, that 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 I think that's spot on, you know. And I, I I would say precisely because this narrow kind of view that has practical application results in things happening out in the world, and it seemed to be oh well, it works, so it must be true. And other the other yeah, the kind of the kind of truths that Heidegger, you know, uh, this this revealing, uh, this letting be Aletheia and this kind of thing, they're they're you. You can't do anything with them. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's a negative thing, but that's the characteristic of them. They're not something that you can apply in any way. And that's the whole point. Yeah. That's the whole point. We, we've benefited by this, but we've come, to, we've come to associate the notion of truth with practical application and, and, and success in, in that way. And this is a whole other area of our experience in, be, in being, you know, of our being that we, has, has become marginalized. And I would say that we, we, we somehow have to bring that back in in some way. And I don't mean by, I, I, I don't want to sound too negative. I don't mean by, you know, everybody going to yoga classes or something. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's about, it's, some, it's a larger kind of thing. You know, it's a large, it's the sort of thing that at the best of the time, religion used to provide. But we can't go back to that either. No. We've outgrown that as well. And this is why I feel like we're in this dark night of the soul time or this kind of, you know, we've cut the apron strings. Initially that was great. Wow. Fantastic. And now we sort of like, uh, where do we go now? We don't really have, or there's multiple directions.
0: That's in right. That sense. But in a way it like, feels like between, and I'm using this term very broadly cancel culture, of, mm. you know, what's the past is whatever jettison the past. And then, this sort of algorithmic um, high technocracy thing that's sort of foreclosing the future in a way. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. It's kind of locked in this you know weird sense of present, not in the new age sense either.
1: No, I, 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 I for the longest time, I wanted to make a film about the, in the future where nothing's different at all than how, <laughs> how it is now, but it's some time you know everything's exactly the same, but it's in the future, <laughs> yeah. and so. Okay, we got rid of all the technological stuff that would make the future special. So it's the future now and wow, it's yeah. a lot like what it was like before, something like that. Because the, fu- the future didn't turn up until, I mean, I guess there was the future in the millennial sense of you know, Christianity or Judaism, it was heading towards something. But, yeah. you know, and the ancients didn't have a sense of the future in that way, yeah. it was cyclical. Yeah. Or was the future, was something that was gonna come back around again. The future in, was invented mm-hmm. some you know, four or five centuries in, in that sense you know, mm-hmm. for us. And now it's like, I mean, the future's caught up to us. If you put it, you put it that way, we, you know, we we, we we, are the future already, you know, right. and that, that's the thing. It isn't something, the future isn't in the future anymore. It isn't something that's out there. It's in front of us now. And mm-hmm. God, that, that's, it, it, how should I say it? Um, I remember seeing some, like, it was Steve Jobs and he was selling one of the iPhones or something. It was something about um, your whole life on a phone. That, um, no, 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 sorry. My life is too big. It's yeah. not going to fit on the phone. It barely fits in my flat. You know, it's just, it's like, no, who wants that?
0: Well, now it's your whole life in the cloud.
1: Which well, is yeah, like- yeah, and it's not yours anymore. It's, it's somebody else's. You know, what, that's
0: true. And, 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 it's like this garage, this, this sort of garage that follows uh. me around you know, with what I bought in
1: 1997. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, but let, let Let us not end on this, on this, on this ominous note, but uh, I, but I, no, I, I think, I think it's true, and this is, I think this goes back to this kind of, um, I don't want to say battle, but it is kind of, you know, it's, it's going to be a guerrilla war of maintaining your own interiority against this, these, these forces that, um, and again, again, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be anti-tech and all that, but, you know, there's, there's been an exteriorization of the interior That's over true. the last several years through technology, I would say, with, with this kind of iPhone thing. You can go around and you have this kind of technological interior that you carry around with you on this little kind of packet.
0: Kind and it gets commodified in data. Models. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And somebody's feeding you that. And, 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 and you have, you already have one, you yeah. got one already that you can, you, you can choose what to put into instead yeah. of like, we want to hand that over to lots of people all the time because it's, it's work. It's, it's work to do that. I, I can understand, you know, Oh my God. Uh, you ch- Alexa, you choose for me. It's like, Jesus Christ. I, you know, Someone is going to go around blowing those things away. They're going to go to people's houses and they're not going to shoot the people, they're going to blow out. They're going to blow away, Alexa. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Alexa murders.
0: Yeah. I predict. And the children <laughs> will scream bloody murder. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Gary, this has been really wonderful. Oh, my pleasure, it. thank you. Um, I think the audience is going to uh, have a fun time with us. So oh, I
1: hope so cuz I have so.
0: Yeah, I have too. All
1: right. Thank you.
0: Thank you you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.